0: This podcast is recorded on stolen and unceded Aboriginal land.
1: We acknowledge the First Nations and Elders of this country and we join their calls for justice.
0: There's a hole in your flag. (laughs) Prime Minister, Prime Minister, there's a hole in your flag and it's gaping elbow. (laughs) It's what? It's gaping Oh, gaping, elbow,
1: elbow. I see, yes. Yes, (laughs) how the mighty have fallen, Dantian former <laughs> federal trade minister or something, the local MP for my home seat of Wannon in regional oh. uh, Victoria, the, the seat that Alex Dyson will win at the next election, uh, was spending his time expressing concern this week that there was a giant, <laughs> a giant fucking hole. He said
0: gaping. I think it's important that he said gaping hole. <laughs> I think that's important.
2: <laughs> Parliament House is the home of Australian democracy. Parliament sits here, heads of state come to meet with our Prime Minister here. But Parliament will sit today under a flag that flies above Parliament House with a gaping hole in it. I hope Prime Minister Anthony Albanese will be able to fix this before Parliament sits today. We need to have pride in our institutions. We need to have pride in our Parliament and we need to have pride in our flag.
1: Gaping hole in the flag that flies above Parliament House. And he was seriously worried. Like, he's like, fuck, he man, we should really have pride concerned. in our institutions and our flag. He cannot
0: work under those conditions <laughs> or under that flag with the gaping hole, to be more precise.
1: And then, of course, in the most Labor move of all, just immediately buckled and just... The Speaker of the House, Milton Dick, and the lady in the Senate, Sue Lyons, came out and said, we, we hear you, we understand, and we absolutely agree with you. <laughs> this is the you. most important issue of all time. The national significance yeah. and the importance of the Australian flag cannot be overstated. I think you'll find that it absolutely can. I think it's extremely it easy yeah,
0: yeah. to overstate. And you know how, how I know that? How? Because you're doing it right now. Yeah, actually, you're in this statement yeah.
1: in which you're releasing. You're overstating read overstating the flag. It. You're actually overstating yeah. the importance of the flag.
0: I like the second sentence. We are aware of the unacceptable condition of the current Australian flag flying above Parliament House. This is crisis communications, people.
1: This is huge, and of course, I love to see like they, they, they stop making excuses. You've got to fix it straight away. And people are saying, "Well, it's very windy, and it takes three people to bring <laughs> the flag down, and the wind—it's too windy. People will yeah. die trying to put up the new well, fixed Australian flag."
0: You know, classic like liberal utopian bloody um, dreamers. They want everything done now. They have no understanding of the realities of, of getting things done in this world. Yes. And, you know, as people are always saying about the liberals, they complain about something and then when someone fixes it, they claim it as a win. Yes. You know, liberals taking credit for things. Isn't that a classic?
1: I just love the idea of someone dying (laughs) while trying to put up the new flag, like literally dying for the flag. And
0: obviously, like we must like scrambling up the (laughs) the pole. Like (laughs) it was
1: worth it. I regret nothing. Idiot. If
2: you want the doll for life, free marijuana, vote Greens. Really, the Greens just hate Australia. She has described the Greens as very, very dangerous. I agree. Frankly, I've always found the Greens to be a real serious danger to Australia. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a serious danger to Australia.
0: Hey, I just met you, and it's crazy, but here's my podcast. Review me, maybe. <laughs> oh, God. I saw Kylie Rae Jefferson last night.
1: Yes, as did our producer yeah. Mike the Griff Griffin, and so that like you had a great time. Yeah, it
0: was really good. <laughs> I want to cut to the feeling of the cred. Serious, serious danger. Of What's another one? Um, all that we could do with a green left movement uh, in Australia. That's what this podcast is about. I'm Emerald Moon, and that's mm-hmm. Tom Ballard. Hello. This is not an official Greens Party podcast, but. We do ask the all-important question this week of our special guest, green Senator Nick McKim, as to how much influence the Serious Danger podcast has in Party Room, and the answer will shock you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the answer might surprise you. <laughs> you won't believe you won't how believe much influence this podcast has.
0: Doctors are jealous.
1: <laughs> uh, a great chat with him about uh, what happened this week. The RBA continues to wage class war via inflation. We talk about the Labour government's unshakable commitment to being shitty towards refugees. And we're chatting about the big green win in the fight against the climate crisis. Mm-hmm. Greens win.
0: Greens win. Uh, hey, if you're listening and you're a patron, thank you, especially if you're a new patron like Emma, Adami, Sean, Dweck MP3, Emma, <laughs> Nun, and Maria. <laughs> We hit, I think we hit like a, um, like one of our goals for Patreons and then we lost some. So we need, <laughs> please, for people who are shaving that $3 from their budget because of the RBA rate increases, look, if you can afford $3 a month, please consider chipping in. It helps us pay Mike the Griff Griffin to keep producing the show and you get access to cool bonus episodes. There was one that went out this week on International Women's Day about whether International Women's Day has just become Mother's Day, like the origins of the day, what it means for, you know, a socialist feminist movement. Oh, I see, I see you've noted here, Tom. Into <laughs> maybe one of the things that we lost in our, our Patreon contributions was Sam editing his pledge down from 666, quite good, to 420. Also funny. <laughs> Times are tough, but you'll be keeping it funny. So thank you.
1: A uh, little plug, I had a chat to Jacobin this week, which might be of interest to all the Watermelons who listen to this, chat about the book and about democratic socialism and millennials. And, oh, we had some good news, some more good news mm. before we jump into the other stuff that was going on this week. Greens senator, former Serious Danger podcast guest, yes. Barbara Pocock, chairing a committee that's basically definitely 100% going to introduce the four-day work week to everybody, kind right? Kind
0: of, maybe, but not probably not. I mean- the like both major parties supported this report unanimously. Great, that says yes, we should introduce a bunch of reforms to the way we work, including a four-day work week with no loss of pay. A trial across the country, they recommended. Uh, they also recommended doubling paid parental leave. Apparently, the report, like I think, even the the Guardian article on this was like a lot of the recommendations in the report effectively represent Green's policy, <laughs> which is funny. <laughs> so you know. <laughs> thanks for getting on board major parties
1: and thanks (laughs) issue Barbara just just sabotaging everyone's feedback as chair of the committee and just being like okay what I'm hearing is let's do green policies and I'll write that down yeah I'm hearing
0: I'm hearing I'm hearing this um but then of course labor this reminds me of the Simpsons meme where they say say the line Bart and they say the labor government senators said they supported the recommendations in principle but argued that quote Trillion dollars of debt from the for former coalition government necessarily imposes constraints on social policy. Mm, how many more times are we are going to have to hear this? I'm so bored of it. Just give everyone a four-day work week. can't.
1: The tax cuts introduced by the former coalition government that we support has no impact whatsoever no, on, on social policy so. and is not in any way tying our hands to make this country a better place. Yeah. Ignore this. Stop talking about that, please.
0: Ooh, the coalition's like, oh, it might make things a bit um, less flexible in the employment relationship, meaning employers may not be able to just do whatever the fuck they want to their employees. Uh, so anyway...
1: Let's talk about more winning, please. I, I love to win.
0: Greens win. Woo,
1: woo, 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 woo. I love to win.
0: Ring the Greens <laughs> win bell. We should have a Greens <laughs> win bell in each of our apartments. Because um, we did one this week. We secured a win on something that is quite personally important to us, as you may have mm-hmm. realized by the fact that we do not shut up about it, which is stopping coal and gas. Uh, not the big one. Not the safeguard mechanism stopping coal and gas yet. Still working on that. Um, That will likely come back later, and we'll talk about that in a second. But the National Reconstruction Fund bill. So the Greens said this week that, yes, we will now support the bill in the Senate in exchange for the government amending it to prevent the National Reconstruction Fund from investing in coal or gas or native forest logging, which makes fucking sense, right? Sounds Mm -hmm. good. good. Sounds good. They're all
1: bad things. So this big fund shouldn't shouldn't give money to bad things.
0: Public fund shouldn't be Mm. financing those things. And the other thing that they secured, I believe, is that the independent board of the fund will have to ensure that the investments that this fund makes are consistent with our climate targets and future uh, commitments under the Paris Agreement. Oh, good stuff.
1: Amazing that we have to fight for that. Yeah. Like that's an amendment that we have to get in there. Like, oh, also this shouldn't conjure in all the other policies which are designed to try and make yeah. humanity survive into the future, by the way. That's a Greens radicals. win.
0: We are true radicals. <laughs> Did you know, do you know what the NRF is? Are you familiar with the proposal, Tom?
1: Well, it's sort of a, a fund designed to <clears throat> fund reconstruction Reconstruct on a national nation. basis, I'd say, mm. like across the whole country. sort of, It's, it's a, sort of a national reconstruction so funding arrangement, yeah.
0: You are so smart. Uh, I actually didn't really know much about this at all, actually. Um, <laughs> I have since learnt this was Labor's like, well, one of Labor's kind of flagship election promises was this $15 billion manufacturing fund. Apparently uh-huh. it is modelled on the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, Some of you may be familiar with the Clean Energy Finance Corporation (laughs) because it was one of the things that the Greens won in the climate package that we secured from the Gillard government in 2010 after the CPRS. This is what we talk about when we say we then got a good thing. I think that actually no, has stood on, the test on, of time hang on, hang on. and invested billions of dollars in clean energy it, infrastructure. It created
1: a decade of climate it's a delay and dysfunction. It's but confusing. then you're saying this good thing
0: came out of it's it? It's confusing, the isn't it? It's almost as though, yeah, we then negotiated world leading climate legislation, including this fund, which persists to this day. Uh, it was introduced in 2012. This was the one that last year or for the last couple of years, the Morrison government was trying to amend the rules around the Clean Energy Finance Corporation to allow it to support gas, among other things. <laughs> so, you know, but no, we have this great, this like public bank effectively that finances clean energy projects and has done a lot of good work and it's a good Greens Power Sharing legacy. And this is... Yes. Yes.
1: I mean, I mean well, it should be said, it's, but it's also still a compromise somewhat compromised position, right? It is a public fund that... Supports private investment in renewable energy. I should say, yeah. So obviously, the dream is, of course, the the state creating an energy system and and funding it directly. But you know, as it is, that yes, it was way better than the 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 status quo. That's for sure.
0: Exactly. And so they've looked at the clean energy finance corporation and gone, looks good. Let's make a manufacturing one. Uh This fund will, yeah, invest in cool manufacturing stuff. It has like these priority areas. When I looked at the labor website on the fund, it was actually, it's just like classic labor policy. It was kind of inscrutable and confusing. As I Great. understand it, it has these priority areas for investment, including like transport, defense. Interesting. Mm. Resources like new minerals, you know, critical minerals, mining and and processing, um, agriculture and food processing, medical science, renewables, and low emission technologies manufacturing. The Greens. Isn't this like
1: making trains in Queensland? Wasn't that a big thing that they were like. Is this part of that? I think it's like the manufacturing to make trains. Yeah.
0: Mm, Okay. Yeah. Cause I know there's one day I want to look at this more closely. Whoever the company that they awarded the making the trains contract to in Queensland is like, big friend. Is it downer? I don't know. Maybe Uh big Labour Party friend. And it, it was always a bit strange. They made this really sudden kind of election announcement. And it was clear that this was kind of just like a deal that had been done with this manufacturer that Labour's friends with. Not that it's not great that they're building the trains, but anyway. Yeah, so we like building stuff in Australia. We agree mm-hmm. as the Greens that you should make more stuff here. The Greens as Senator Penny Orman Payne who was kind of leading these negotiations on the NRF with Adam as I understand it because she's the she holds that portfolio with lots of words like industry and regional etc. And <laughs> uh, <laughs>
1: Regional industry, industry inter- of the regions, and
0: industry, etc. <laughs> uh, and yeah, she she said, you know, when she was talking about this in the media, she was like, "Well, yep, the green support. We we support investing in in manufacturing. Uh, we brought a policy for that to the election. We've done that in multiple elections, state and federal. And so mm-hmm. we think this is generally quite good. We just don't think it should be funding fossil fuel projects." Sozlo. My question, though, it, this is kind of this has been framed as, yeah, these are like a couple of key. You know, climate-related balance of power fights that the Greens are in at the moment, where they're negotiating with Labor on on key um, planks of key key pieces of legislation that help Labor deliver on its election promises. Safeguard mechanism being being the other one, I guess. Housing is also kind of another one, but not sitting in that same coal and gas space. But unlike on safeguard mechanism, I don't know if Labor had previously commented on whether they were opposed to the you know, the Greens ask for this fund mm. to not be allowed to fund fossil fuel infrastructure. Do you know, had they said anything on it previously? Were they kind of quiet? Like, have they actually changed their position on this?
1: Well, I mean, I guess getting that assurance is important. Um, I mean, that is why the Greens said they weren't supporting it, right? Like, well, mm. That's why we were holding out. And, of course, Labor was using that as a cudgel and say, oh, the Coalition, the Greens, they're against manufacturing in Australia. Yeah, um, exactly. Unlike us, we're cool and good. Um, So, I mean, you've looked into it more than me. The question is to whether or not money would have actually been directed toward fossil fossil fuel projects. That seems like that that at least was a possibility and it wouldn't shock me. It wouldn't shock me to see a Labor government give the thumbs up to some fossil fuels um, by using this massive fund. Yeah.
0: I mean, I will say I think that Labor, like particularly since about 2019 when Adani was a big issue and giving public money to Adani was an issue, that was how Labor tried to appease their, you know, more progressive base who might have been looking towards the Greens is differentiating differentiating themselves from the coalition right. on the basis of well we won't give fossil fuels public, money. public money
1: we'll they just, just let them do low. their thing they just we'll just let
0: them go loose yeah I, but that's exactly right but they do so I think yeah in principle they it, I think it it absolutely does matter that we got this this mm. amendment because Labor might have been like well no but we're not going to be doing that anyway but then they fucking would have yes. And as I think the Greens point out, yeah, they've got these these priority areas for investment through the funds, but that could have been changed at any time. But now what they'll do is they'll have prohibited investment areas, including coal and gas and native forest logging. The fact that, I mean, yeah, the other reason that we know that it's probably good is because Joel Fitzgibbon, (laughs) former Labor (laughs) Minister and current head of the Australian Forest Products Association, did this sulky media release.
1: Our good friends at AFPA. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Being like, Um, this is a sad day with common sense and blah, blah, blah. And he's very mad at labor for doing this. That's probably a good sign.
1: You retired bitch. Go (laughs) away. We don't want to hear from you anymore.
0: (laughs) You sent the tweet where I think he tweeted about this particular thing. And then I looked at a couple of his other tweets. Have you seen his tweets?
1: Uh, he's really worried about cutlery, and
0: a picture. <laughs> he will do this thing where he posts pictures of something that's like made from wood. And then he's like, "Huh, checkmate. like checkmate environmentalists. Uh, this was made from wood, and he always he has his little tagline where he goes, "Wood, the ultimate renewable resource." Like this man. What a fucking idiot.
1: If we don't respond more urgently to our growing wood shortage, we'll not only be more import dependent, we'll be eating airline food with plastic again. Wood, the ultimate renewable.
0: Mm, The real environmentalist here. Thank you, Joel. Thank you for standing up for the environment. That's really good. I'm sure it has nothing to do with your actual... paid position anyway (laughs) so what does this mean do you think this affects the safeguard mechanism do you think we were talking about this whether we think that this could be related to the greens negotiations on the safeguard mechanism separate bill which will probably come back in a couple of weeks time
1: yeah i mean that was my that was my concern we heard word through our little sources that there was a win coming through we saw that this being announced and we were like oh does this mean in return for this the Greens are supporting the safeguard mechanism, mm. but that does not seem to be so. the case, thank goodness. Um, and yeah. the safeguard vote is still, they want to get it done by the end of March, but they've got, mm. what, a, a week off? And then from the yep. 20th of March, Parliament's, uh, back. Parliament's back, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. So, um, no, and the the fight continues and it seems like the Labor government has made the decision that they are not going to give a fucking inch on new coal and gas projects in relation to the safeguard mechanism. Is that what, what you're saying?
0: Yeah, it seems quite, like, and I've seen media reports, reporting, referring to it this way as well, that it's like a deadlock between, you know, Greens saying, well, our offer is no new coal and gas and then we'll, oh. we'll, we'll be happy to support it even though uh, it's got shit stuff about offsets uh, and Labor going, you guys are the fucking worst, please stop and we hate you. Uh, uh-huh. And we will absolutely not be doing that. One thing I, I do think was a slight shift this week was this like crystallization around gas as the real mm. question, because, and and I think labor is probably, you know, not necessarily stupid to do this because I do think that the general public, I haven't looked at any kind of opinion polling on this or anything, but it's certainly more accepting of, of the idea that we don't need and should be urgently phasing out coal than they are of gas. There's still maybe some acceptance that we need gas for like firming capacity. And Albanese stood up at this uh, Australian Financial Review Business Summit this week and gave his keynote address where he said that businesses want to move towards renewables and to power them, but they need the firming capacity of gas. Gas has Mm -hmm. a key role to play as a flexible source of energy, provides peaking power today, firming and backup power, Uh, And he's basically saying, yeah, we need gas as a transition fuel, that, like, age-old fucking bullshit propaganda from the gas industry when, as we know, Tom, we do not need gas as a transition fuel, do we?
1: Um, But I thought we did because the gas industry tells me so.
0: Yeah. Based on a few myths, like, and, yes, it sucks that we are still having to do this, but we are. First of all, the idea that gas is, like, better than coal, or it's not a real fossil fuel. It's like, no, gas is a fossil fuel. It is is a significant source of emissions. It doesn't emit as much CO2 as coal, but the methane emissions, particularly fugitive emissions, are much more potent than CO2. And, yeah, gas is bad. It's a fossil fuel, and we just don't need it. If we massively expand renewable energy, that's the thing. It's like, it's actually not necessary, but particularly in a country like Australia, where we have abundant natural resources, wind, sun, all of that, we got it. The argument about firming, there's this idea, yeah, there's this argument that well, gas is needed because you can switch it on quickly. So if there's an outage, it's good to be able to just like, it can fill the gaps. That's what they mean by firming capacity. Right. Yeah. But I mean, first of all, I think that plays into the narrative that, renew- that renewables are inherently less reliable and that we're likely to have more outages and have more gaps to fill when we shift to renewables. Not yep. the case. Evidence the shows case more renewables in the grid actually makes it more secure, <laughs> yeah. fewer outages than coal. Like, yeah, we're, we're likely to need less of that. And the fact is that like the answer to that is investing in storage. So big batteries, pumped hydro, deep storage, that can then be switched on when, yes, yeah, sun's not shining, wind's not blowing, or there's an outage, you switch, you've got that stored energy. And so, yeah, if you've got a, a huge amount of, of renewables spread across the country and a good amount of of big, deep storage, you don't need gas. Yeah, just no nope.
1: And certainly don't need new, to the extent in which we, we gas will be used, Existing gas projects can fill that, and we do yes, don't need new, need new gas, gas, gas projects. Yes, don't need Thank new you. gas. That's for sure. Yes, and yes. we're also shipping a whole bunch of it overseas. I mean, if you really were worried about the gas supply, yeah. you would do something about making sure that we don't send seventy-five percent of our gas reserves overseas. you fucking psychos.
0: <laughs> yeah, but there's this. Yes, like there's still this fucking argument. It, it's all. This is all coming from industry and labor and the coalition and are all saying, well, industry needs certainty and so for some reason that means that that's why we can't do a ban on coal and gas and we'll just see when globally we move away from fossil fuels then suddenly we'll have all these stranded assets and job losses. But that's about providing certainty for business because that's what we care about. Like this is the constant irony from the parties that refuse to actually provide a transition plan for these industries because they're just like, they just want to prolong it as long as possible and meanwhile yeah people who work in these industries know that they won't be around forever Mm. uh but they just claim that it will and they won't even tell us what is going to happen so that was the other big thing that happened with the safeguard mechanism bill this week is that the government refused to release its modeling on the bill it's modeling around how much those big emitters would be (sighs) Emitting, how they would meet the carbon budgets. Yes. Uh, They were meant to release it. How how is your bill going to work? Is your bill going to work? Is it going to work? show us. You've got modeling that shows us. So why would you not show us if it does do, in fact, what it says it's going to do, which is bring down emissions, wouldn't you just show us? But no. They Getting were a lot to- of questions
1: about my t-shirt <laughs> yeah, that the t-shirt ads already answered.
0: Yeah, <laughs> they they were meant to release it by 4 p.m. on Thursday afternoon. They said we don't want to do that. It would be against the public interest. Do you are you confusing the interest of the Labor Party? Uh, they say that it's got commercially sensitive information. It would affect the market. Always the bullshit commercial and confidence shit that you know governments use to avoid transparency all the time. The Senate rejected that claim. They rejected yes. this public interest claim and and protection from releasing the the modeling. In fact, the coalition supported a motion moved by Green Senator Sarah Hanson-Young against to, to reject that claim and say, no, you do have to release this by four PM on Thursday. And the government was just like, still no, we won't.
1: Is there any consequences for that if you don't do what the Senate tells know. you?
0: No, I yeah, like I haven't seen what the mechanism is to like force them to release it. I really don't know what happens now, but Jesus it seems like Christ. they're just, yeah, they are just saying, no, we won't be doing that. Thank you very much. And I'm, just, uh, and, oh yeah. my
1: God. And just the fucking arrogance of the new Labour government, a new version of politics, climate wars are over. You know, we're going to do things differently. And like we, yeah. the denial that the climate the coalition's been responsible for so long. Okay. How about some transparency? And you show us yeah. the actually modeling that you're basing this entire policy on that you expect us to support. No. Not going to do that piss off. Jesus. Absolutely
0: not. What did you think about the fact that in order to pass that motion through the Senate, obviously we had to, quote, unquote, team up with
1: the coalition? <laughs> it doesn't care. Yes, they're doing it for cynical political purposes. I don't give a yeah. shit. They're correct. A broken clock, okay? Every now and again yeah. the Liberal Party might be voting for things for their own horrible reasons, but the thing they're doing is correct.
0: Yeah. Um, but this It is- doesn't matter. Yeah, this is what I kind of was was getting at when you talk about like certainty for businesses because the coalition will be like, we need certainty for these businesses that they will continue to be able to uh, burn coal and gas and fucks yes. all over for decades to come. And the Greens like, we need certainty so that we can develop a transition plan for workers who are going to be fucked over if we pretend that coal and gas is going to be around forever. Uh, very different angles, but, yes, in this instance we were both like, please show us the modelling. Labor says no.
1: But The, the general principle <laughs> of transparency in telling us, well, you know, that's good Number, but I don't care who's supporting that. And you can imagine yeah. a world in which people on the left and right can agree that... Government telling us the basis on which this legislation is being passed through—that's just a general principle that is important yeah, for for all it's government. Um, I would argue.
0: Kind of important. It's kind of good. There's also. Did yes, you remember so a
1: few weeks ago when Albert said the fact that the coalition and the Greens hate our climate legislation is a, is a sign that we've got the balance right? Do you remember oh, seeing yes. that? Oh yes,
0: Fucking people, hell.
1: I'm in the sensible centre, and people are screaming at me on both sides. Therefore, and that means correct. I'm
0: correct. Everyone hates me, so I must be doing something right. That's, uh, that's how I would like to see myself. Maybe I should just start using that philosophy. Everyone disagrees with me, so I must be super smart.
1: <laughs> I just shat my pants and everyone's telling me that it stinks. Therefore, I'm correct.
0: Therefore, I'm right. Uh, the other person that's in play with the situation on balance of power in safeguard mechanism bill is, of course, hot boy David Pocock,
1: mm-hmm.
0: he, uh, I saw an article this week that showed there was a poll in the ACT, his constituency, where 63% of ACT residents oppose new coal and gas and 82% oppose the unlimited use of carbon credits to offset pollution, which I thought was somewhat interesting and definitely mm-hmm. ramps up the pressure on him to block the the bill, as media was saying. He, I've noticed, yeah, I didn't realise we're kind of like Teaming it, you know, he's he's taken offsets. He's running hard on offsets and ditching the offsets part while we've been running hard on coal and gas. So that's interesting. Be interesting to see what what happens there. Do you have any has has your have your predictions shifted at all as to how this is going to play out?
1: No, it's really hard to tell. I mean, I just listened to this morning we were recording this, the 7am podcast, chatted to Rachel Withers, who we've talked about before, one of the few journalists in Australian smart, media who will give the smart greeds. an actual A basic run <laughs> and just yeah. laying out the case and just, you know, she made the point that, again, this isn't working anymore, this idea that. People are going to think the Greens are wreckers and that the Greens don't really care about climate action. It's just not cutting through in the same way. People know, mm-hmm. particularly when the UN and the International Energy Agency and the overwhelming scientific consensus packs our decision, you know, they can push that that uh, that pressure onto Labor and Labor's uh, belief they have an electoral mandate and they're going to stare down the Greens. I mean, really listening to that podcast, I was like, oh, this is, this is like existential for Labor. Like this is the political fight that they need mm-hmm. to have. They cannot be shown to give any seed any ground on this, yeah. of course, because they know the Greens are coming for them and they know yeah, that so true. they're not good enough and so they're going to have to stare it down. And they're making noises about doing it through regulation as opposed to legislation stuff. Mm-hmm. We'll see how that goes. But, yeah, something's got to give and I am encouraged at least to see the Greens uh, seem to be um, indicating they're going to Holy hold their off. nerve, you
0: know. Yeah, yeah. And as uh, this person on Twitter, Ross, Ross Floyd on Twitter pointed out a, a very good point about the way that Labor keeps framing the Greens as their real opposition. Like yes. as these obstructionists in, in doing that, they're like, yeah, the Greens are the real threat to us, <laughs> which, as he says, is having the effect of elevating the Greens' policies and positions in a way that's going to be very interesting come the next election. And, yeah, yeah they're making the Greens <laughs> seem <laughs> very big and powerful and also it is giving a lot of airtime to what the Greens policies actually are, and that's generally a pretty bloody good thing. So looking forward to that. There's, yeah, my predictions are probably still the same. I'm I'm still interested to see, yeah, whether, I, I don't know if they'll shift on no coal and gas yet, mm. but maybe um, around a climate trigger in the EPBC, like in the federal environment laws, so that they are not seen to be bowing on that big demand but that would still be a pretty fucking significant win for the, for the Greens.
1: I tell you what, I definitely think can't happen in two thousand and nine when the Greens voted down the legislation like the, the second time as well. Mm. the Labor Party shelved it, right? So the greatest moral challenge of our yeah, generation, no. and then no, we're not going to do this anymore. I don't think that Labor could possibly do that. I think they can't. Nah. No one will accept. Oh, you're not going to do anything about the climate crisis because the Greens voted this down. What the hell are you talking about? Clearly, you have to go back to the drawing board and get this through in this term of Parliament because we had the climate election. God damn it! So I think that's yeah. a really different, uh, material difference to to 2009, yeah. 2010 for sure.
0: Yeah, or they send us back to the polls. that would be fun. Bring
1: bring it I was on. talking to, to bring us. It on.
0: I, that's exactly. I was talking to someone who works in one of one of our federal MPs' offices, mm. and they were just like the fire in their eyes when the, the prospect of <laughs> them sending us back to the polls was raised. They were like, "Bring it the fuck on, because we are ready." <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, and they are, you know, on this and on housing as well. Like as we'll we'll talk about in the call to action. Um, spoiler uh, spoiler alert, mm. but like. Our MP's officers are out there door knocking in marginal Labour seats and Labour knows that and they should be paying close fucking attention. Yeah, there's a there's an article in the conversation about this safeguard mechanism that, that- outlines top likely outcomes. They're talking about, yeah, maybe a, a pause on projects uh, rather than a ban while we look at environmental laws, inserting that climate trigger in the EPBC, maybe replacing the offsets component mm. or and or negotiating with states about a transition pathway for coal and gas. Um, I think that's important. In Queensland, we announced last week, I think, that we're introducing a bill to ban Coal and gas immediately, and then force the state government to work with with industry and 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 communities on a transition plan for coal and gas exports because they've like they've looked at that with with energy but there's still yeah when it comes to approving new coal and gas mines and shipping that overseas to be burnt to contribute to global emissions that will warm the whole fucking world including (laughs) australia and queensland which is where we live
1: i regret to for me that queensland australia are both part of earth and it's
0: i'm no scientist but it's one (laughs) one atmosphere i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure it's the same yeah um so yes so like that that kind of that focus on working on a really clear you know job guarantees and free reskilling and a, a clear transition plan for resources workers i would love to see that come out of this who can say we shall see we shall see i'll
1: be a bad Let's chat about some of the other big stories from Parliament this week. We are joined by one of the Green Senators from Tasmania. He is the Greens Party spokesperson for Economic Justice and Treasury and for Home Affairs, Immigration, Citizenship and Multicultural Affairs... Huge portfolios. And Nick McKibb. Hi, mate. Thanks for coming on the show.
2: Sounds like too much. Hi, folks. I'm very excited. <laughs> Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, well, we know you, that you, uh, you listen to the show. We, we saw you at the Greens Natural Conference in Brisbane. Uh, you were making your pitch to get into the serious danger world. We need to know how much of an influence is serious danger in the Greens Federal Party <laughs> room? I, uh, do we set the agenda? Is everybody discussing the latest episodes every week? What kind of um, impact is it having there?
2: I wouldn't say you're mm-hmm. like the absolute top item of conversation, but mm. you are, I'm sorry to be the bearer of that news, but uh-huh. but, but you are genuinely, um, like we all watch you, we're all kind of massive fanboys and you girls and you. everything in between. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, we just love you. So, yeah, you're um, you're on the radar, which is pretty cool, I reckon. That is, that is the correct answer. Yeah, so. we appreciate that.
0: Confirmed. Incredibly A <laughs> Very
1: powerful podcast. Um, two things we really want to get into with you, Nick, uh, that totally relate to your portfolio, and there was some, you know, a lot of stuff going on in Parliament this week, but uh, big economic news, of course. On Tuesday, for the first time in history, Australian history, the Reserve Bank raised mm. interest rates for the 10th consecutive month. The official cash rate is now sitting at 3.6%. That is the highest it has been in a decade. It is really hurting people. People are very familiar with this. The cumulative impact of all the rate rises means that the – an average mortgage of five hundred k is paying an extra one thousand dollars a month, so it's about twelve grand a year for people on those kind of uh, middle in- incomes with those mortgages. Obviously, there are heaps of mortgages that are way more than that. That's also smashing renters. Landlords are passing on the interest interest rate rises, and there's a very low vacancy rate. So, people who are renting, which must be a lot of people listening to this podcast, know how tough it is. There was research this week showed that less than five percent of Sydney rentals are advertised at less than four hundred bucks mm-hmm. a week. It's fucking crazy out there. Yeah, it is. But it's okay because this is all to break mm-hmm. the back of runaway inflation, which we're told is what the RBA <laughs> is doing, uh, inflation running about 7.4%, slightly down on where it was in December, but still way above the RBA target of between 2 and 3%. Okay. What the hell is going on here, Nick? Why is the RBA doing to this and why have you labelled all this as institutional madness?
2: I have labelled it as institutional madness because it is. And, look, firstly, yes, there is an inflation problem. Inflation's running hot. Uh, No one has any dispute with that. The dispute is, like, what should we do about Mm. it? And the RBA zone modelling has shown that about 75% of the current inflation spike is actually caused by supply side issues. So they're either like external to Australia, they're the war in the Ukraine, they're climate change, they're supply chain issues that really um, we can do little to nothing about uh, in the global context. But also included in that 75% is corporate profiteering, which is something that we could do something about in Australia. But the headline issue here is that Mm -hmm. with an inflation crisis that is caused um, overwhelmingly by supply-side issues. The RBA is just simply using the wrong tool for the job. And in doing that, as you said, Tom, they're smashing renters, Mm. they're smashing mortgage holders, they're smashing uh, anyone who's got debt. And it is the people who can least afford to bear the pain who are bearing the brunt of the pain. And what we should be doing is using the massive uh, fiscal taxation levers that are uh, within um, the government's control and putting in place things like a corporate super profits tax, a wealth tax, so that firstly, the people who can afford to pay it are actually paying it, uh-huh. and secondly, you can use that revenue to fund a better life for the people that really need help. Yeah,
0: because so what by raising interest rates, they're basically they're like, okay, you little profligate piggies who keep spending so much, we're going to make things <laughs> much harder for you, so you don't spend as much, and that will fix it. But everyone's like, that, it, that's not actually a problem. We're not profligate piggies. Is that basically what you mean?
2: Well, uh, there's probably a small part of uh, the profligate <laughs> piggy argument, but the majority the, the majority of um, the problem is, yeah. is supply side, as I said. And, look, I have to say this is... Like, this is the great triumph of neoliberalism. Like, the problem that we've got is the, the neoliberal brain worms have basically consumed <laughs> the minds of everyone from the governor of the RBA through to every single liberal, national and Labor Party member of the parliament. Mm. And they simply have this view that the market can take care of it. Uh, leave aside the fact that the market is in the process of cooking the planet and destroying a lot of people's lives, but apparently the market's going fine. We'll just leave the market to take care of it. Um, inflation is always in this world, in this neoliberal worldview, a function of demand. Too much demand in the economy—that mm. uh, was the case at times in the past, but it's definitely not the case this time. But they are just uh, this Pavlovian hmm. response of raising. Interest rates as the primary and only response to inflation is just cooked and it's destroying people's lives.
1: Because the the two goals of the RBA is to manage inflation and get us to full employment, okay? This is the supposed mission of the Reserve Bank. Now, what happened in the neoliberal revolution is the whole definition of what full full employment is changed to the point where it was only seen in terms of controlling inflation. So now the Reserve Bank, in theory, is uh, obviously they won't say we want a recession. You've said that they're putting us on a path towards recession or at the very least increasing joblessness, increasing unemployment to try and take some heat out of the economy and put a tamper on inflation, which is completely disconnected with the misery that that visits upon people who are forced into unemployment, right?
2: right. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting the response when I've been um, putting these matters to, uh, to Philip Lowe at Senate estimates. Uh, in his last appearance, he was all very much like, oh, you know, look, I read all the letters and this is very painful. The and letters are tough. I'm, How just, much is letters. I'm sure, you know, reading these letters in his uh, luxury mansion are very painful <laughs> for him. But, um, but I actually expect, and I'll, I'll ask the RBA this next time, so heads up to anyone from the RBA who's watching, but I think they might have got some PR advice uh, in the interim between his first appearance at Senate Estimates and his second one uh, because he was much more polished and much more um, uh, apparently empathetic to people's people's lived experience. But, look, ultimately here, what what we've tried to do, I guess, in the last year is really... Basically, you know, we're trying to storm one of the innermost bastions of neoliberalism here, which is this—you know—the high priests of the neoliberal mindset, the, the Reserve Bank board. And to a degree, I think we've been successful in that. There's a way to go yet. We haven't quite torn down the gates, but we're certainly we're outside with the pitchforks, and it's a good place to be. <laughs>
1: Very good thing. I mean, what you're coming for, what you've been calling for, and trying to build this case is going at, as you say, yes, this neoliberal tenant and the independence of the Reserve Mm. Bank, the almighty, important, holy, sacred independence of the Reserve Bank. But you are repeatedly making the case that actually the government has the power under legislation that's been around since the fucking 60s to override decisions from the Reserve Bank in certain extraordinary circumstances. This is heresy to anybody in current government or in the neoliberal mindset. But can you just sort of lay out that case a little bit more about how much more active the Treasurer could be when it comes to these kind of decisions?
2: Sure. Well, there's basically um, two powers that uh, exist in the Act that we think uh, could be used. The first is the power of the Reserve Bank itself to direct to direct how uh, money that is printed and you know they printed about 400 billion dollars worth of money during the pandemic but they actually have the power to direct how that money is used and about half of that money under what's called the term funding facility uh, basically went straight into the housing market because they basically give it to the banks at very mm-hmm. favorable rates the banks turn around and lend it to their highest margin products which is uh, mortgages on homes, and that's what really pumped prime the Jesus housing the market Christ. with all the flow-on impacts that we saw during the pandemic. They only
1: gave it to people buying their first house, right? They weren't giving it to people who owned multiple houses and wanted <laughs> oh, more. Oh no, right? they like, that would it, be crazy. Oh what? no, what?
2: anyone who can no. afford to pay the ro- Yeah. So, so you had two hundred billion. Now, what the RBA could have done is turn around and say to the banks, actually, you can't lend that out to housing, put it into productive parts of the economy. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, renewable energy, uh, building climate resilience into our infrastructure, things like that. But they didn't. And when I put that to uh, Philip Lowe during the last but one Senate estimates, he nearly fell off his chair and he was like, well, that would be a return to socialism, uh, Senator. And I'm sort of nodding at him, going, yes, that's right. (laughs) Um, And he basically argued that that, that's this archaic provision of the Act that obviously Parliament has just forgotten to take out of the Act. So... (laughs) That's the first. The second power, which I think, which is, is, which the is more, sorry, Nick,
1: that's ideology.
2: No, that's ideology. Yeah. Okay, that's not that's yeah. not an
1: independent econ one hundred and one position. That is fucking ideology, first and foremost. That it's completely dissolved of any political content because of the neoliberal consensus, where it's just like there are just things that you can and can't do, and there's just basic common sense that you can never question or do uh, anything differently. I,
2: I, I'm telling you, uh, the neoliberal brainworms have consumed <laughs> their minds. There is, there is no doubt their it's minds sad. have been completely it's consumed. Sad. <laughs> by these worms. The second lot of powers is what I call the Harold Holt powers because they were introduced by Harold Holt when he was treasurer and they give the government of the day through the mechanism of the treasurer the power to override the RBA on interest rate rises. So this is the power that we have been arguing the government should use and it's there in the Act. Um, it's still in the Act. Parliament hasn't you know, forgotten to take it out. It's just been there since Harold Holt was treasurer, and we say that gives and should be exercised by by the treasurer. And I have to say, this like talk about Harold Holt.
0: I'm like sidebar. Are you suggesting that the RBA was responsible for the disappearance of Harold Holt? I'm just noticing a drawing a connection here. Uh, you don't have to say yes, yes. or no, what?
2: but well, I, I actually don't know. Who's to say? But new conspiracy theory that? just dropped. Yeah. <laughs> That, it indeed, but um, like this podcast is called "Serious Danger," mm. right? So I'm going to seriously put myself <laughs> in danger here by by referencing Robert Menzies on this oh, podcast oh, and saying, "I know, right?" Um, but the point is that even Menzies, who was Prime Minister at the time, that. Um, these passages like like they understood that at times uh, inflation is not caused by demand side pressures they understood that mm. and that is the great victory of neoliberalism you know since those days mm. where neoliberalism has basically um, uh, put put so such hard blinkers on the thinking of people that they just can't conceive of an inflation spike that's caused by anything other than uh, overheating on the demand side of the economy. And and that's where we find ourselves today. And it's just smashing people's lives. It's tragic.
1: And it's also anti-democratic, as you said in a, in a Twitter thread, that people should check out too, sort of laying out the case on this stuff. I mean, the idea that a democratically elected representative like the Treasurer might step in to exert democratic control over the economy for the benefit of most people and for ordinary working people. Like imagine if that's how things work, but no, no. You've got these citadels of just economic experts who know all the charts and the data and the graphs and have done all the research and stuff, completely disconnected from ordinary people's lives. Imagine if we had democratic control over massive economic forces. Like, Surely that would be a better society. Isn't that the whole fucking point? Rather than the government being able to say, hey, not our fault, don't blame us, it's, it's all the Reserve Bank. We're, they've got to be independent. That's more important than, than, than you being unable to afford a place to live, for God's sakes.
2: Oh, look, absolutely fair point. And um, the problem is that the, the independence of the RBA has come to mean a lack of accountability right. on the RBA, and independence should never equal a lack of accountability. And the powers, as you say, the democratic powers that that are bestowed on the government of the day through the mechanism of the ballot box mm-hmm. are not being exercised here. And and really interestingly, like government's happy to um, step into the market uh, and do things like Uh, exert an element of control over gas prices which happened late last year well why won't they step in and for example freeze rents Mm -hmm. um, which would make such a meaningful impact on people's lives and actually if you froze rents it would be anti-inflationary like there are so much there are so many things the government could do Mm. that would actually be anti-inflationary they would uh, they would either assist people who most need assistance or they would target people to pay who could most afford to bear the brunt of it and we could end up with a you know a much more equal society as a result mm.
1: Final question on this point, um, I'm interested in how you think things are going to lay out. Uh, Philip Lowe reiterated in this recent rent, uh, rate rise this week, the RBA's central forecast is for inflation to decline this year and next to reach around 3% in mid-2025. But I don't know, is anyone listening to RBA forecasts at this point when they've been wrong so many times? They said interest rates weren't going to go up, blah, 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 blah. Do we actually care what, they, uh, what they're predicting at this point?
2: Uh, look, I, I don't necessarily think that their models are, are going to are going to pan out. And, and the blah, 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 then, Tom, was actually critical because part of what really got us started on this was Philip Lowe saying a couple of years ago that interest rates wouldn't go up until 2024 mm. and basically inducing a whole bunch of people to go out and borrow money that it turns out mm. that they, they can't afford to pay off. So um, that was really critical. I mean, I think my prediction is that, that Philip Lowe's contract won't be renewed in September, and I think that's a good thing because, uh, you know, as we've said, Someone needs to be held to account for for what's going on. But they'll just replace uh, him
0: with another rich, evil, neoliberal guy.
2: They will, Emerald. Um, can't argue with that. Uh, but uh, we we're just trying to kind of destroy the bastion, yeah. you know, one one block of sandstone at a time. You know what so- they
0: say: the next evil RBA head will be a woman. <laughs>
2: Yes, yes, girl boss, do it. Well, look, I've always had the view that if women had been running the world for the last 5,000 years, we'd be in nowhere near the troubles we are today, so maybe <laughs> no. that would be a You're small step should. forward. You're
0: only saying that because it was International Women's Day this week.
1: No. I, I believe that women can be just as evil and greedy as men,
2: actually, because like, I'm the real feminist. Thank you, so, Tom. Yeah. Thank
0: you for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> how I Hashtag Well, how how
2: actually, yeah. I believe that too, Tom, but as a general rule
0: that you would say that, Nick. Why would you say that about women? <laughs>
2: I'm going to stay quiet now and just hope We move on. Okay, brutal.
1: Well, uh, well, actually, just one last question on that point. So we're going to have this review yep. into the RBA that the government wants to do, and then there's been talk of mainly scaremongering for the right side of politics, but the idea that you might have a slightly different makeup of the RBA board, including, heaven forbid, workers' representatives. And so the scare case is, oh, well, if Sally McManus is on the board of the RBA, but of course that's what used to happen, right? The head of the ACTU or yep. at least workers' representatives were on on there to at least make the vague case to encouraging these people on 100, 800 grand a year to maybe consider the way this is actually going to affect workers. Um, do you think that's going to happen?
2: Uh, I think it's possible that it will happen. So we put in a submission to uh, to the review and the panel were good enough to give me an opportunity probably over an hour or an hour and a half to, to speak to them about the things that we submitted. And I'm hopeful that they will do something that, Uh, democratises the board of the RBA or at least allows the RBA board to have a formal mechanism whereby they can hear the voices of people like workers, people like mortgage holders and people like renters. Mm. So I think that's possible. Um, We'll know in a few months when that review is handed down. The other thing that we actually, if folks want to see it, it's on the the Australian Greens website, our our submission. But um, the other thing we uh, argued for is to include in In the legislation in terms of the goals of the rba the need to maintain a safe climate and a stable ecology for the planet because if any organization in the world is not aiming to do those things then they're letting they're letting us all down so um i i'm hopeful that there will be some recommendations in that area too yes please offshore detention has been a humanitarian calamity And it has been one of the darkest and bloodiest chapters in our country's story. It is time that we wrote the ending to that chapter and this bill will help us to do that.
1: All right, also this week, the evacuation to safety bill that you introduced in the Senate was defeated. It was voted down thanks to the Coalition, One Nation, and what does it say here? Oh, the Australian Labor Party. That's right. They voted against it. That's so odd because they're good. Um, Can you tell us exactly what this bill was about? What was it hoping to do, the evacuation to safety bill?
2: Yeah, sure. So we... Uh, this wasn't a bill that was based on Greens policy. This was a bill that we actually made a decision to base on Labor Party policy because uh, we knew if we just put up our position, which is that everyone who is still in offshore detention should be offered the opportunity to come here to Australia and settle here in Australia and be put on a pathway to permanent protection and ultimately citizenship here in Australia, uh, that later would simply vote that down. So we crafted this bill to be um, within the framework of labour policy. So it just required the minister to offer the opportunity to everyone, there's about 150 people um, still on Nauru or in PNG, to bring them here to Australia temporarily, so they can be looked after here, supported here, until they find uh, the government can find a third country to resettle them in. So that's what it did, and um, yeah, I guess in hindsight, somewhat predictably, but really sadly, it was voted down by the government.
0: What was their so why? Be- what was their justification for voting against it? <laughs> oh, I had, not um, the real reason, but like, how did they try <laughs> and spin it? Is what I want to know.
2: That's well. That's actually the most difficult question you've asked me today because <laughs> I actually having listened to their arguments, I still don't know what their arguments were. It was some kind of bizarre kind of stopping the boats kind of thing. Okay. And of course, you know, inherent in that argument is is making excuses for torture, which um radical statement but there are actually no excuses for torturing people and there never should <laughs> wow. be you extremist um, so there was some sort of stopping the boats kind of blah blah in there and kind of strong borders blah blah um mixed with oh we're um actually torturing people in a more humane way than the previous government did so it's all kind of fine
1: good it it was extraordinary i maybe want to Yeah, rage at the world and specifically the Labor Party. I mean, the the idea that they want to have it both ways and that we're tough on borders but not, not have on humanity, it's just brutal. The Government-controlled Legal and Constitutional Affairs Legislation Committee, so looked into this bill, said offshore detention was damaging and cannot be allowed to continue, but said the bill should not be supported. The committee acknowledges that a number of asylum seekers and refugees have been in offshore detention for far longer than can reasonably be expected. The committee recognized that this has resulted in significant personal costs, including physical and mental health costs, that cannot be allowed to continue. The Australian government has recently affirmed its commitment to regional processing as an effective means to deter people smuggling and save lives at sea. However, the government has also taken the view that unauthorised maritime arrivals only be placed in offshore detention for a very short period of time until a third country settlement arrangement can be put in place. The committee said it urges the government to urgently consider all available options to affect the removal of asylum seekers and refugees currently in offshore detention, then recommended that you shouldn't pass this bill which was doing exactly what they were recommending the government to fucking do.
0: What's a very short period of time?
1: Well They will never define it. The defining <laughs> feature of labor, we can't have we can't have indefinite detention, but we will not limit detention. It's maddening. I, I, I just I don't know how these people fucking sleep at night. It's it's insane and obscene.
2: No, it's like um, sort of tell me you're suffering from cognitive dissonance without actually saying the words. I mean it's just it's extraordinary and the moral argument here is compelling because it was actually the Labor Party that put all these people into offshore detention mm. in the first place in 2013 when Kevin Rudd and Tony Burke um, stood up July 19, 2013. And the, the reason I know that date so well is, um, you know, I've made a lot of friends through my, my trips to Manus Island over the journey and that date is seared in their minds mm. as the date when everything changed for them. Some of them were actually at sea in boats on that date and uh, their lives have never been the same since. I mean, the thing about offshore detention, I mean, it's, it's it's it really is one of the darkest and kind of bloodiest chapters in Australia's story and we thought this bill was an opportunity to help write the conclusion to that chapter. But, it, I mean, People have suffered from, there have been murders, um, rapes, um, child sex abuse, you know, institutionalised, state-sponsored child abuse, like lives have been destroyed, deliberate medical de- neglect. I mean, it's just the most shameful time, one of the most shameful times that we've seen in recent Australian history and it has just treated people like human billboards and I've used the the example before but they are literally like like or not literally but they are like the corpses that used to get impaled on the walls of medieval mm. cities to dissuade other yeah. desperates from from trying to enter it's just it's it's torture yeah. and there's no other word for it and it's got to end but it, it's unfortunately still going on yeah
1: so there, just so people know, there 66 people on Nauru, 92 people kept in Port Moresby and PNG. Remember, all these people on Manus Island, that that centre was closed down because it was found to be in contravention of PNG law, which is law that we helped write as a country, right? So we we set up the legal system, we helped do that, and then our own offshore detention program contravenes that human rights law that we that we fucking created. So you got these people in there; they're in limbo, and these are. Some of them, I understand, have been recognized as refugees, right, Nick? Like some of them are in various states of the the, the process. So they're they're being processed. Some of them have been processed, have been found to be refugees and are still waiting for resettlement options in these other countries. And as you said, this bill was just about bringing them to Australia, not settling them here, but at least keeping them here where they can get the best medical and support, you know, care and support they need while they're waiting for those resettlement options. Pretty, pretty very similar to the Labor Party's Medivac legislation from a few years ago, right? Like how do they square those two things? When Medivac legislation they got through, they, they managed to make that happen in the, um, in the parliament when the coalition was in power to try and bring people who needed serious medical attention to Australia for the care they need. How do they reckon with the Medivac legacy, but then rejecting this this um, evacuation bill?
2: Well, yeah, fair, fair question. And I made that point uh, in my second reading speech on on the bill, and it's true. I mean, so, so we put that up. The Greens put up the Medivac legislation in the Senate um, when Labor was in opposition, and we had to do a little bit of negotiating with the government and give a little bit of ground on things like national security issues that we, in an ideal world, we wouldn't have, but we really, really wanted to get it through mm-hmm. and to get Labor support. We did that, and they ultimately did end up voting for our for our Medivac amendment and that that was terrific. And a, a lot of people, like into in triple figures of people, did get transferred under the Medivac legislation and most of them are still here in Australia, which is great for them. But uh, in terms of how they squared that circle, they, again, uh, they don't go there. And But what I will say about that is that it exposes their support for the Medivac legislation as being based on political calculus mm-hmm. of wanting to embarrass the Morrison government mm-hmm. rather than on any deep-seated humanitarian view of the world. Yeah. Jesus just
0: Christ. I mean, it just all, I always think about the way that they, so many Labor MPs fucking like wheeled out the family from, the Tamil family from Bulaula, uh mm. to have a go at the LNP, particularly in the lead up to the election when they knew they were under threat from the left and from the Greens. And it's like where the fuck is that sentiment now, that these are people yeah. Who deserve protection who deserve safety it's just completely out the window and albanese didn't albanese stand in front of a fucking podium at a press conference this week with the word stop the boats that like just shamelessly standing in front of an lnp a tony abbott fucking slogan how can you not just feel sick to your stomach you know uh,
2: i know uh i couldn't agree more emerald and i mean look i've I've held this portfolio for the Greens for a while now and, you know, I think I went to Man Asylum maybe five times and I was there when, you know, the food and the electricity and the drinking water and the medical supports were cut off from over 600 people and, you know, during what what I call the siege of Man Asylum, which was actually, a, by the way, a, just a massive reclamation of agency by those guys who'd had their, their agency just... Mm. you know destroyed and, and taken from them over a period of years it was a, probably the most amazing thing i 've seen in my life in terms of human human courage and human strength and human rebellion but look, yes i 've seen uh, a lot of, of that pain and that suffering and i've watched um, far right fascist and neo nazi and Nazi groups in europe basically adopt uh everything from the slogans, even down to the font that was used in the home affairs messaging. You've got the UK now basically putting in place a very almost identical regime, even to the uh, extent that you've got... uh, the the relevant minister in the UK standing with a podium that actually says "Stop the boats." Mm. Is that On what I it. saw? Am our- I confused?
0: I thought that I, I assumed I that was Albanese. Yes. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, <laughs> <But> <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Like,
2: yeah. yeah. But- I just assumed yeah.
0: because I'm like, well, that's his fucking policy, so yeah, you
2: know. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it is, it is, and look, you wouldn't you wouldn't be surprised if it did happen. But yeah, that's happening in the UK now, and like it is one of our most shameful exports as a as a country now, and you know it's hard to to remember but if you go back to when the refu- like we were a prime driver in establishing the refugee convention mm. Australia was on the international stage a prime human rights champion and we have gone from those lofty heights to the stage now we are rightfully a uh, human rights pariah around the world and it's because of it's because of the treatment of of refugees and and, and other issues I might add in terms of um you know problems with the way we still haven't got a treaty and all of the other things around First Nations people and some other issues, but a refugees has been has been critical in driving that erosion of our international reputation. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: and look, this is a minor point, but I did it, it did infuriate me again in this story. Um, again, just a, a illustration of how. Uh, completely set the mindset of uh, strong borders is in our political system. The committee that was looking into your bill received more than 150 submissions, all but one of which supported the bill. That submission was from the Department of Home Affairs, which said it shouldn't be supported because it might offend the Nauru government if people were brought from Nauru to Australia, and also tried to argue that we had no legal obligation or responsibility for people on PNG. Okay, so you've got 149 submissions from all these different groups saying, absolutely, we should evacuate these people. The Department of Home Affairs says, no, nah, that would be bad. And the committee ignores the advice of the overwhelming majority and says, recommends no. I mean, is there, is there literally any point in these committee reports into non-government bills when they're put up, Nick? It just seems to be a, just a fool's errand to me.
2: Look, in terms of the outcome, I think that's a fair comment. What those committee processes do is allow for um, like campaign opportunities mm. and like you've got to believe that one day you can bring about an end to, to what's going on. So you just have to try and to take every step that you can. Interestingly, the, um, the thing that infuriated me most, uh, and if anyone watched my speech, so I did have a bit of a redness moment in the Senate when I was talking about this um, in regards to the Home Affairs submission is they had, the fucking gall to, to invoke the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child Ugh. and suggest that, like, after a decade of overseeing state sanctioned child abuse that saw kids uh, develop resignation syndrome where they basically wouldn't get out mm. of bed, uh, even to go to the toilet, they wouldn't get out of bed. Yeah. They were in a basically a catatonic state yeah. um, for that. Department who oversaw that regime of torture and state-sanctioned child abuse to try to have, you know, to dare to invoke the UN Convention of the Rights of the Child as an argument why our bill um, shouldn't be supported by the Senate did, um, yeah, kind of annoyed me and it really annoyed me. In fact, I was really mad and angry and I said some things about them in the Senate under parliamentary privilege.
1: Oh, do you did some unparliamentary language, Nick? The worst thing you can Was possibly do, uh, as we discuss the torture of the most vulnerable people on the face of the earth, I, uh, is I using the bad
0: words. I hope you were nice. Words. I hope you were civil,
2: Nick. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think I might have crossed that line there. <laughs> not even um, civil
0: when talking about torture of children. Not civil.
2: Look, it's an interesting. Actually, look, the civility discussion is really interesting. I, I actually think there's a really strong argument now that um, civility, like we need to go past. Oh, civility. Like, yes. that's been yes. a long like long held planet. serious
1: danger oh, position. Your... Fuck that. Oh, kid. well there you,
2: there you go. But <laughs> look, you know, the planet is fucking cooking. <laughs> it's likely that hundreds of millions of mostly poor brown and black skinned people are gonna die or be displaced from their homes. Our ecology is collapsing around us like we're torturing refugees. Poor people are getting smashed, rich people are making off like bandits. I mean kinda kind of fuck civility at this stage. Fuck civility big
0: time. Yes. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. What are the resettlement options for these people now? If they're if they're going to continue languishing, languishing, what is actually the future? Is is New Zealand a realistic option? Is the US a realistic option for these people? How how much longer is this bullshit going to go on for?
2: Yeah. So. Um, the US process is nearly finished. There, there's certainly no, no more people being processed and, and assessed under the US process. There may be just a small handful of people who are at the end of the process but have yet to have been transferred. The New Zealand process is underway. I don't think the New Zealand – so so the people that are offshore in PNG and Nauru are being prioritised. It's worth pointing out that Labor has continued, the, remember under Scott Morris in the dying days the Morrison government, uh, the government basically washed its hands of the people in Papua New Guinea. Mm. So PNG is now no longer a, des, a designated offshore processing country, and Labor has shamefully continued that that policy. But the UNHCR are working with directly with the New Zealand government to try and get people off PNG to New Zealand, and um, the Australian government is working to try and get people off Nauru to PNG. Uh, What worries me is that there will be a a small number and I don't know how many of what what I I guess are known as the difficult cases Mm. and for one reason or another it it might be difficult for some of those people to to be accepted by New Zealand. and So I don't actually think the New Zealand process is going to resolve the situation for everyone. And then there are still hundreds of people who are from that offshore cohort but they're in Australia still and um, I'm sure some of them... Will will either decide not to apply, yeah. um, or or they will also be in um, their circumstances will be such as it will be difficult for, for New Zealand to accept them. So I, I don't think there is a genuine pathway for everyone to date. And yeah, after ten years, that's just a just a bloody tragedy, really.
1: All right, everyone in Labor for refugees, quit that fucking party. Join the Greens, Jed Carney. If you really care about refugees, quit that party once again, time and again. This party has shown that it's not interested in living its values or when, when time gets tough, actually you know, taking on this issue and fighting for human rights for all and recognising everybody's legal right to seek asylum. That's, uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure Jen Carney and everyone for Labour Refugees are listening to Serious stages. So I'm sure they're listening
0: make and they're, a big handing in, they're writing their resignation right now.
1: Yes. <laughs> thank you for trying, Nick McKim, and thank you for talking to us um, and for being on the show. We really appreciate it, man.
2: Hey, thanks, folks. Really appreciate it. Love your work.
1: Thank you, Nicholas McKim. Much obliged, um,
0: Nicholas McKim. I guess that's
1: his real name, yeah. His full name. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, coming up on Sunday, April the second. It is Palm Sunday. People might be familiar with this. Happens every year. It is a big, big old march. It's got some religious overtones, but you don't have to believe in God in order to get involved and is often used as a platform to, to march for justice for refugees. If you want to get involved with that, there, there are Palm Sunday marches happening right across the country. We'll put a, show, a link in the show notes to find out for your um, your nearest Palm Sunday march. Um, again, I mean, the ASRC was backing in the Greens evacuation bill in a pretty demoralising defeat, of course, but the fight for justice for people seeking asylum and refugees continues. And if you want to get involved on Palm Sunday, then check out the show notes.
0: Woo. Don't forget the New South Wales state election is in just under two weeks. It is on the 25th of March. If you're in New South Wales, please, 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 hurry the fuck up and contact your local campaign or branch and sign up as a booth volunteer for election day or pre-poll. You can also get along to... Don't forget to vote for the Greens, please. (laughs) God. Um, You can check out greens.org.au forward slash events for other events in your area. But if you're not already in touch with your local campaign, you should get onto that. Maybe even find their Instagram, send them a DM or, yeah, contact your branch if you can. Uh, Get onto that. The other thing, as we mentioned earlier in the show that's still ongoing, is the debate on the Housing bill will be coming back. That's that good old housing bill that's going to probably make the crisis worse (laughs) because this bullshit fund could lose money and fuck us over in the middle of a housing crisis. The Greens hold the balance of power and we're pushing for some good stuff. So if you haven't already, email your Labor MP. Tell them to support the Greens' proposals, including stuff like a rent freeze, minimum housing standards, more social housing if you haven't done that already. If you're in Queensland... You can go door knocking. Max Channel and May this office is coordinating a bunch of door knocks next weekend. So the weekend of the 18th and 19th of March. Uh, there's big door knocks, massive door knocks in Maruka, Ipswich, and Nunda, which happen to be in some marginal seats. Mm. And if you even if you're not anywhere near there, you can ask their office to help your branch organize your own event. Uh, they can send you resources, they can train you, they can help you get that up and running so that it's happening across the state and scaring the shit out of labor so that we can actually get some progress for uh, people who need housing. Mm-hmm. The, we'll put the link in the show notes, but there's, um, it's com forward slash housing underscore weekend underscore <laughs> of underscore action. <laughs> hate that URL. Who did that? Uh, <laughs> hate the URL. Love the campaign. Get on it. <laughs>
1: You can also rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Support us on Patreon. Follow us at Serious Danger U on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. Go to SeriousDangerPod.com for all your information. We'll catch you next week.
0: Bye. Bye.